We are still in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to, uh, to grab one of the ones that are on the side table there and uh, um, follow along with, with what we are, are reading here today. Today we're going to be Mark chapter 14 and uh, starting reading at verse 53 and um, looking at the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Let me remind you of the opening words of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. For those of you that were around when we first started this whole series looking at the Gospel of Mark, we talked about how this is, this is Mark's thesis for his Gospel, for his presentation of the life of Jesus Christ, that, that this is everything that he is going to accomplish through the rest of of the book that he has written. That he wants to to help all of us understand who Jesus is. That he is the Christ. The Messiah. The the anointed one. the, The one that had been promised right from the very beginning. The son of Eve. The 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 offspring of Adam and Eve that would that would bring victory over death. Victory over sin. That's who Jesus is. And in order for him to carry out that, he could only be God. The Son of God come. It's it's interesting that the the gospel starts off that way, but we don't hear anybody else say Jesus is the Son of God until this chapter, sort of. In, in this account, it's not an affirmative statement. Uh, but then also at the very end, at the, at the moment when Jesus dies, that out of, the, out of the mouth of a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, declares, surely this man was Son of God. Uh, through, through all the rest of, of Mark's gospel, he is going to, to reveal to us and proclaim loudly that Jesus is the Son of God. Not by saying Jesus is the Son of God, by talking about the things that Jesus said and talking about the things that Jesus did. And through that, establishing that yes, indeed, for him to be able to accomplish that, he could only be God himself. So he, he's establishing that throughout this whole gospel, but also as we've been following through this thread, all along the way as, as Christ's words and his deeds proclaim his divine nature, we see the opposition all around him trying to deny that he is the Son of God. To deny that clear proclamation that Jesus is their Messiah. Come to rescue them from sin. And they wanted nothing to do with it. 
And here in this account, those two proclamations, Jesus through His life proclaiming that He is the Son of God, the divine Messiah, come to rescue them in sharp contrast to the religious and civil elite who said, no, we don't want you. I think as, as I've been looking at this passage, it, it has laid on my heart that as we see Judgment Day coming closer and closer in our lives, it is, it's not hard to imagine that soon we will be standing up in courts being attacked for the things that we believe and the things that we stand for. And I think it's valuable for us to be able to look at this passage and look at the, at the example that Jesus has set for us of how we respond in those kinds of situations as they arise. Let's pray before we go into this passage. Heavenly Father, what richness you have blessed us with. These words that help us in the, the, the uncertainty and the, the darkness of our day. To have that example of Christ before us. That when we wonder how, how, we should, how we should live this life, how we should respond to the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in, that we can look to Him and we can follow in His footsteps. Pray for Your Holy Spirit to open up our minds, to, to pull away those distractions so that we can, that we can truly hear Your message for us today and walk out of this place with certainty and purpose founded on your truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many had bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false, test, false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. So again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. The chief priests were looking for testimony against Jesus that, that would give them the excuse to be able to put him to death, to put this away for once and for all. <laughs> and they couldn't. Everybody that came to testify had some kind of conflicting testimony. There, there was no agreement in the things that were being said, the accusations that were being leveled at Jesus. It was this... This chaos of confusion. You would think that, that if they were so determined that they would be able to get their stories straight, right? If, if you're going to have to tell lies, then at least agree together on how those lies are going to work so that you can accomplish what you're going to do. And yet, their, their, their testimonies contradicted and overlapped and and never accomplished what they needed. It reminded me of, of David's prayer when he was uh, kicked out of, his, out of his throne by his son Absalom. And, and David, David prays that, that Absalom's advisor, Ahithophel, that his advice would become foolishness. That it, would, that it would lead them astray. And, and you can see what's going on. And whether, it is, whether this is the, the result of, of hearts that had given themselves over to Satan to, to accomplish this, the, the purposes of Satan. And, and we know that Satan is a chaos of confusion. That, there, that within him there is no certainty. We, we see that in our world today, Right? That is, he has, exerts more and more control as more and more people are, are, are uh, giving themselves over to following after him. Nobody knows who to trust anymore. It, it's, it's like you, you hear arguments going back and forth from one side to another, and nothing makes sense. And that's what was happening here in Jesus' trial. I think it's also entirely possible that it was the work of the Holy Spirit in that place that, that was confusing them, that was stirring them up so that they wouldn't be able to make a valid argument against Jesus. But nonetheless, in the midst of all of this, as, as they were throwing out these lies and, and throwing out these claims, talking about how he, he said that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it, we know that's a lie. We can look at John's testimony where John said that, that Jesus' words was, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it. 
never claiming that he was going to be the one that was going to destroy it. Uh, Jesus did talk about the temple being destroyed, but never took ownership or took responsibility for that destruction. But he did say that he was going to rebuild it. And we know from John and from Mark as well that, that Jesus, as he was talking about the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding, that he was talking about his own body. That they would be destroying this temple. But that God without hands would rebuild it and establish it forever. The dwelling place of God in the hearts of us, his people. So as they're throwing out all of these lies against Jesus, he stands there silent. Never responds. Let's them throw their lies. Never felt in one moment threatened that somehow he needed to, to stand up for his reputation to, to correct those lies that were being told against him. That was not his purpose of why he was there. He wasn't called to, to defend himself. He wasn't called to, uh, to set the record straight, to argue and debate, uh, uh, calling up different witnesses who would establish his credibility or establish the truth of what he was saying. That was not his purpose for why he was there. The Bible tells us that God says vengeance is mine. It's His responsibility to defend His Son. It's His responsibility to defend us, His people. That's not our job is to try and stand up for our rights, to stand up for, for our, our, uh, our reputation, our integrity. When, when accusations are being thrown at us, when, when lies are being told about us to, to somehow correct those lies, it's not our responsibility. That's the Father's job. So then the chief priest asks him again, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And this is the one place where somebody, not in complimentary way, calling Jesus the Son of God. This, this is <laughs> ironic for those of you that are literary kind of people. That here in, in the words, in the mouth of the one who is trying to destroy Christ, makes the only truth statement that has been declared in this whole time. That you are the Christ. Actually, in the Greek, uh, Greek doesn't have punctuation marks, doesn't have question marks or periods or anything, and so you have to take it from the context. It would be just as appropriately stated, and it could be that this was more of a statement. The way that it reads in Greek is, you are the Christ, Son of the Blessed One. But that wasn't his intention to declare who Jesus was. But when the question comes up about who Jesus is, that's 
when Jesus speaks. That's what we are called to witness and testify to. Not about defending ourselves, but being able to stand up and declare boldly who Jesus is. And so in that moment, Jesus responds and says, I am. Now we've got to take a little bit more time with this. I'm just going to grab this thing. Um, we have in the past talked about I am statements um, and, and, and the, the, the different places throughout Jesus' life where he says I am um, and made that connection back to the account in Exodus where Moses, encountering God in the burning bush, asked God, who are you? The context is uh, Moses is asking, if I go and, 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 and go back to Egypt and, and say to the, to the people of Israel, the children of Israel there, that, that God has sent me to free them, who will I tell them who you are? And God uh, gives us this insight into his nature. Let me encourage you, you keep your finger in Mark because we will be coming back. But turn to Exodus chapter 3. The re- one of the reasons why I, I want to take just a little bit more time on this is because <laughs> I've been wrong. And, and as I've been studying, it, it actually, I, I started getting some inklings of this a little while ago, um, and then did a little bit of research and then looked again uh, this week and realized and went in a little bit deeper uh, to understand where exactly I was wrong and, um, and, and try and clarify that a little bit. So uh, let's just look here quickly at this passage in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Um, I've kind of already given you the context of all of this. Uh, but there we see in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses is asked, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God said to the peop- also said to Moses, say, to, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, a couple of things. First, before we get too deep into all of this, you saw there we got in verse uh, 15. You see where, where uh, God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. You'll notice in your Bible, the L, the O, the R, the D are all capitalized. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, what that means is that uh, that that is a replacement for the name of God that is used by the people of Israel. And they, they, they 
honored and respected God so much that they never wanted to take his name in vain. So they never speak the word Yahweh. Is that the word, first word that I've got up here? Can you make sure I'm back, the mouse is back up here? There we go. There we go. I got all the pieces up here. So this is the name of God. Whenever you see in the Old Testament, Lord, spelled out with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is this, the name of God. And we, they got this from this passage. Right? It says, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Yahweh. That's God's name. And, and it gets used over and over and over again. Now the mistake that I have made in not, not doing enough with, my, with Hebrew is I often thought back in verse 14, I am. And I thought that Yahweh meant I am. I was wrong. Yahweh is the third person singular, which means he is. It can also mean he exists. It can also mean he will be. Will be, yeah. Or he will exist. And in fact, what, as I've been studying more of all of this and listening to a bunch of different people talk about this, it actually means all of those things together. He is, he will be, he exists, uh, he will exist. All of that is encapsulated because of the way that Hebrew works. This is a, 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 perfect, um, a perfect form of the, of the verb which means that it, has, that, that it has effect on the now and continuing into the future. So it can be both a present statement and it is also a future statement. Um, and so all of those things are encapsulated. Uh, but what I got wrong was when, Jesus, when God says, I am, he doesn't say Yahweh. He says the first person, which is Ehe. Ehe, I am what I am, Ehe Asher Ehe, which is I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or I exist because I exist, or I will exist because I exist. What we understand from this, that God is trying to declare who He is, and, and in, in the frailty and the, and, and the limits of human language, the best way for us to be able to understand who God is is that He is the all-existing One. That He is the One who exists not because anything of else began Him existing, but just because He exists. That's who He is. So we have, we have when, when God refers to Himself, he uses the first person, Ehe. I am who I am. But when we speak about him, it would be wrong for us to use I am because then it would be talking about I am, right? And so that's why throughout the rest of 
the time, the rest of the Bible, the name of God is Yahweh. He is. Um, there, uh, I, I, could go, I could go more into it. There, there are still some aspects of this that, that I am a little bit unclear on because there are some places actually in, in Scripture that use the word Yahweh, um, but, but it is talking about somebody else. Um, uh, so an example, just in, over in the next chapter, we're going to read about how God is saying, I'm going to send you Aaron, and, and he's going to help Moses through all of this, right? And, and there is uh, uh, where, where he says that, m- that Aaron will be of, uh, um, um, vo- of uh, your mouth. He will be your mouth. And so they actually use Yahweh, he will be your mouth. So I'm not exactly sure how the, the Jews deal with that if they don't say th- that word because it's not used as the name of God. It still is the same word, but it's not used referring to God. So I'm a little bit uncertain of how exactly all that works, and I'm going to do some more research, and you can ask me about that later. There's actually another uh, Hebrew word as well that means I will. It's ani. There's actually uh, another uh, passage here just shortly down what's the verse for that um in oh right in leviticus num, leviticus 18 there's a point where god says i am yahweh and they use ani yahweh so there's another word for i am that could also work in, in all this and they use that quite a bit in in hebrew so i'm, I'm taking you down a trail that you don't need to go on this morning so but it's really interesting to me, so I've been spending a lot of time on that this week. Um, so when Jesus, here, standing before the chief priest, and the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus' response is, in Greek it's written, ego eimi, eimi. Ego I me, which in Greek means I am. But let me let you on a little secret. Jesus didn't speak, okay, Jesus probably didn't speak Greek most of the time. Maybe he knew Greek, but certainly in this setting, he did not say ego I More likely, throughout most of Jesus' life, he spoke Aramaic, which is very closely related to Hebrew, and a lot of the same words and a lot of the same sounds. And so when the chief priests asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus likely would have said, Eche, or the Aramaic equivalent. I actually, this is speculation, so this isn't necessarily in Scripture and you don't have to receive it or not, but judging from the response of the high priest, I think Jesus addressed him and responded in Hebrew and said, Eche. He wanted them to know that he is 
God. He is Yahweh. But he didn't just leave it at that. He didn't just leave it as, as stating his name that has been given that, will be known, that he will be known by forever. He then goes on to talk about, again, his role. And he says, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. These are clear references that Jesus is making to very notable messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh, first one coming from Daniel. So again, keep your finger in Mark chapter 14. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. And, and we've talked about this Daniel passage before um, because it's such an essential part of understanding when Jesus refers to himself as son of man, he is pointing back to this particular prophecy, this particular vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7. And it's, it's talking about, uh, starting at verse 9, Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. That is talking about, that's another title for God, for the Father. So the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool. The throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands of thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is a, a, a picture of, of the judgment seat of God. And it is establishing that here is God the Father sitting on the throne and all of those statements that the Jews have about God is one, God is holy. This is all being seen right now here in the Ancient of Days. And then we drop down to verse 13. And I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Remember Jesus talked about coming in the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven in the Old Testament and all kinds of prophecy books in Old and New Testament are always connected with God. It's the glory of God. That God is the only one who comes in the clouds of heaven. You remember the people of Israel followed the pillar of cloud by the day and pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire by night. That, that when the, the tabernacle was built there in the desert and they blessed it and they consecrated it and the, the cloud came and descended and, and, and hovered over and right into the holy place, the dwelling place of God. When Solomon built the temple and they blessed it and, and the glory of God came like clouds into the temple and, and nobody could approach it because the glory of God was so powerful. Whenever you see the clouds of heaven, only God exists in the clouds of heaven in that glory. And here we see the Ancient of Days and one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds 
of heaven, coming in the glory of God. This was understood by the Jews and is understood by us today that the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who would come to rescue us would be divine, would be God Himself come. And everybody recognized that. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days. There are two distinct individuals here. God the Father, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, both of them existing, presenting themselves at the same time in the same place. And to Him, the Son of Man, the son, one like the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory. Only God receives glory. Was given dominion and glory that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father, He was pointing them back to this and, and declaring, I am that divine Messiah. He then also makes a statement there that, that you will see Him seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's turn over to Psalm 110. And this is a, one of the most quoted psalms throughout the New Testament, especially through the Gospels. Uh, Jesus refers to this quite a bit. This is a psalm of David and it says, And the Lord, look at the Lord, it's all capitalized, And Yahweh says to my Lord, not capitalized. So, let's get this straight. Yahweh, my Lord, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, says to David's Lord. Who's David's Lord? The Son. One like the Son of Man. Sit at my right hand. So the Father says to the Son of Man, Sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. Again, this has always been understood by the Jews as a messianic psalm, as a promise of the divine Messiah who would come and would be given that eternal dominion. <laughs> Sunday school class was so good up there. Um, so Jesus, Jesus is... is alluding in this description of himself that, um, that he is this divine Messiah that has come to rescue these people from their sin when he says, I am Ehe, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And you know that they knew what he was saying because of the high priest's response. What does he do? tears his clothes and says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What was his blasphemy? That he was claiming to be Yahweh. And that's all that they needed. So you noticed how Jesus responded when lies were thrown at him. What was his response? Silence. But when it came time to declare who he is, 
He spoke boldly. He spoke clearly. I did just a, a, a cursory search here in the New Testament for other times that the followers of Jesus were brought to trial. And I think that the pattern that Jesus set was being followed by all of his followers. Sorry for the redundancy there, but it kind of makes sense. Remember Stephen? Acts chapter 16. Uh, sorry, Acts chapter 6. Just going to quickly buzz over there just to remind you what was happening to him. Acts chapter 6, verse 13. Let me, uh, let me go back to verse 11. So he's on trial. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they, they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, the very same council that Jesus was brought before. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers, fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. And he goes on to talk about the work of God, the saving work of God, right from Abraham through to Jesus. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 55, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Same thing, right? Same illusion. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him and they, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The very same example that Jesus gave, Stephen followed. Peter and John, when they were brought up before the, the council for doing miracles, they were... They were accused falsely. But did they defend themselves? No. What did they do? <laughs> they proclaimed Jesus, the divine Messiah who had come to rescue all of their accusers of their sins. Brothers and sisters, you are going to be falsely accused. Hey. Maybe you already have been. Maybe in, in a workplace you've been called intolerant. Maybe in a family gathering you've been called a religious extremist. Those kinds of accusations are continue, going to continue to grow, are going to continue to build in your life. Let me encourage you to follow the steps of Jesus. 
You don't need to worry about standing up for your reputation. You don't need to worry about defending yourself against those false accusations. That's God's job. He'll confuse the testimonies. He will, he will work in those hearts so that, that their, their accusations will become foolishness. Your job <laughs> is to declare the nature and the character of Christ. The divine Messiah who has come to rescue those people who are accusing you from their sins. <laughs> I'm not promising though that by following in the steps of Jesus that that's going to result in you being exonerated. It didn't happen for Jesus. It didn't happen for Peter and John. It didn't happen for Stephen. But as we've been discovering all through the Gospel of Mark, following Jesus means walking in the way of suffering. Because it is through suffering that our salvation has been bought. Because of the, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you and I have the opportunity for life. And when we walk in the way of Christ, when we follow His example, we have the opportunity of being counted worthy of his suffering so that others may discover life in Jesus Christ. So that when we get to glory, we will be able to see all those who have been rescued because we were bold and faithful to speak about Christ rather than to defend ourselves. Can there be anything better than that? Is there anything more important for you to give your life to than to see somebody else snatched of the mouth of hell and into life? It won't be easy. It won't make sense. But when we walk with Jesus, there is no better way to go. Let's pray. Jesus, you set a hard standard. the path that you set us out on is so daunting. And yet, 
the glory of your mission is absolutely worth it. The results of your suffering and your sacrifice has meant so much for us. So Lord, we pray that you would be working in our hearts that in the days to come as we face accusations, as we face people who would want to malign and, 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 and destroy our, our reputation and, and to, to undermine our credibility, that we would be able to walk your path and in that place, in that time, proclaim you. You as the Son of God. The Messiah sent to rescue us all. I'm not, I'm not fooling myself. I know I can't carry that off by my own strength. We need you, Lord. So help us to walk with our eyes firmly fixed on you depending on your spirit strength and empowerment, following the path that you lay out before us and not one that we picked for ourselves. And through that, would you be glorified? Because there's no one else who is worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.